Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, the show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me is Cameron. Enjoyed this reading, I see. <laughs> it's the enjoyment sound. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. That's that's my uh, my car cat noise <laughs> when, he, when he's just getting irritated. He's yeah. tired of all this crap. Ah! That's what he sounds like to me in my head. And that's how I felt reading this section. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is uh, part two of episode five, where we are continuing with act five, act two of Homestuck, the longest continuous stretch of Homestuck. Um, and we were talking a little bit before we started recording recording uh but i i think it's uh not uh getting too far ahead of ourselves for me to say cameron you're starting to feel the burn a little bit huh i think i was burning a couple episodes ago and now i'm really burning yeah i'm i you know i think i said maybe two episodes back or maybe even three this is when i would have stopped reading this mm -hmm. and i continue to feel that way in every single episode we record <laughs> <laughs> um it, it's just transformed a lot and it's interesting you know i'm not saying that to uh to uh uh kiss kiss say uh shit on the whole project <laughs> <laughs> um uh you know i'm not uh I, I think it's interesting i have a lot to talk about i think but uh i i the goals what's what's up with this thing has really shifted in mm -hmm. ways that are very interesting and it really has hammered in what you have said many times but which I maybe didn't take too seriously, um, or didn't think about it too hard. And I think sometimes, uh, no, not sometimes, definitely, based on my uh, small experience with the Homestuck family, or fam family? <laughs> Fandom. It's early in the morning. Uh, uh -huh. We were recording this at a, a different time. Uh, but uh, based on that, I don't think uh, very many people... I don't know, have taken this seriously, a claim that you made very early. Can I add more parentheticals in the sentence to uh, to prevent myself from saying the end of the sentence? Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. I am... Well, come I, I read long all, ago. I, I read all of Homestuck, so I'm perfectly fine to wait for the next five minutes to for you to remind me what it was that I said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh, I'm really cursed by the object on this one. Uh, no, but you said something early on, and maybe you said it a few times. Um, you know, and I'm thinking back to those times now, and what, what great times they were, you know, all of those. <laughs> all those shenanigans that I was uh, really hating. Uh, if only we were back to those shenanigans, but I digress yet again before I get to the point of my uh, sentence here, which is that you once said, in that voice of yours that you have, <laughs> you know, my darling boy, Michael, he loves talking about Homestuck. We just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm imagining you as a, a little bitty baby boy with uh, dual flintlock pistols. <laughs> uh, oh, but yet again, I'm so sorry. Uh, let me return. No, you said that Homestuck changes as its audience changes. Mm-hmm. That its audience's desires, and this is something that was very apparent at the beginning, its audience's desires kind of drive the project. Uh, you know, that, that those are the commands. Those are some of the uh, fan theories and discussions around fan theories uh, from uh, from the hussy side, you know, that we've seen in Form Springs and things like that. And it is very overwhelmingly clear at this point that the things that 
the the points of connection between Hussey the creator and the fandom, you know, of like what are people here for and what are they talking about and what are these two kind of entities, the the amorphous blob that is the fandom and uh, Hussey, the, the person who's like putting things on the, the computer page, that that has aligned around uh, something very far and distant from where this thing started. Mm-hmm. And that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Extremely interesting. Uh, I'm going to have a lot to say about that because this is also kind of historically the point where I think I first really noticed that not not happening because I've, you know, talked about uh, previously with stuff about like troll romance and shipping, noticing that uh, the irony on those things was not necessarily working in the direction that I thought it might. Uh, but this is the chunk of reading where historically I remember sort of taking a step back and thinking like, this is a different thing now. Mm-hmm. Um, and my response to that, well, like I said, I, I'll have, I'll have a, a bunch to say. Um, first, I will start with our summary, though. Please. Uh, give me just one moment, because I'm going to go uh, put my vacuum cleaner outside my office to keep my cat from coming over and screaming. <laughs> you should leave that in. On the land of heat and clockwork, Jack Noir observes the katana Dave's bro left jammed into the giant floating turntable. Jack takes the katana and flies off. Meanwhile, Jade, who has been asleep for approximately the last 1,000 pages, dreams she is in a flashing rainbow landscape populated by squiddles, smiling cephalopod characters from a children's cartoon show that's appeared in a few pieces of set dressing up until this point. However, the dream becomes strangely manic. Feferi appears briefly, and Jade is subjected to horrifying visions of unbelievably huge tentacled monstrosities floating in the vast, dark emptiness of space. Jade wakes up terrified and confused. Feferi messages her to explain that using her connection to Glub Glub, who was one of their kind, she has negotiated with the Outer Gods, aka the Horror Terrors, for them to blow dream bubbles in the furthest ring outside the session, where players with dead dream selves can appear when they sleep and occasionally meet each other. Jade is nonplussed, but remembering Karkat's earlier advice about her robot exploding, reaches out to him. However, he hasn't made the plan he told her about yet, and so pulls her into a chat with his future self, who has been developing a crush on Jade, and apologizes profusely for his past behavior. The Carcats begin arguing about who Jade dislikes the most, and Jade leaves the chat in irritation. She runs off to see John has already begun setting up her house for her entry into the game, and they catch up about what has happened. John thanks Jade for the weaponized bunny, which he names Liv Tyler, and then briefly reflects on how sad it is that the real Liv Tyler is dead. Meanwhile, Jack flies to the land of wind and shade, where he finds Bro and hands over the katana for a rematch. Dave Sprite appears, ready to join the battle. John ponders what to prototype in the Colonel Sprite to make Jack weaker, hitting up Rose for some feedback. Rose explains that she's hesitant to share too much of her eldritch knowledge since she knows any misstep could result in an offshoot timeline that dooms them all. However, she explains that failing to prototype would be a mistake, as they need the game's battlefield to evolve into its final form in order to retrieve a treasure that spawns in its core. In the fight with Bro and Dave Sprite, Jack is pummeled with Lil Cal and in retaliation summons his Red Miles attack, setting fire to the ocean of oil on Loas. The narrative jumps forward to show John sleeping on his bed, which is sinking into the oil with fire approaching on the horizon. 
He is confused, having just prepared to prototype Jade's sprite when he apparently fell asleep. Now he doesn't know what's happening, and neither do we. Rose messages John and urges him to escape, explaining she will need him to travel to the evolved battlefield and get the treasure, which has the ominous name of the Tumor. John questions Rose about how mysterious and aloof she has become, but they are interrupted when Carcat messages John for their second conversation, during which Carcat accuses John of having perpetrated their session's incredible fuck-up. What happened was this. As the massive meteor approached Jade's house, Jade's entry item spawned as a tree with a beck-shaped pinata hanging from it. As John prepared to prototype a maimed doll that would have depowered Jack, Vriska used her psychic powers to put him to sleep. With the apparent aim of saving Jade, Beck himself jumped into the Colonel Sprite, adding to his already considerable power, and then zoomed into the sky to blow up the meteor, in the process unleashing a radioactive blast that destroyed any remaining life on Earth. Jade, meanwhile, struggled to break the piñata as Bro and Jack continued to fight among the flames of Loas. With the help of Beck Sprite's teleportation powers, Jade finally shot the piñata and her house and the adjacent volcano are teleported into the medium. As this happens, during the fight with Bro and Dave Sprite, Jack Noir gains the powers of Beck, assuming a sinister dog-like form, and we flash forward backward to the end of the Trolls game session, where Carcat prepared to open the door to the new universe, but was stopped when a demon appeared in a crackling cloud of green energy. This turns out to be none other than the Beck-powered Jack Noir, whose one remaining hand was mysteriously bloody. Using her vast army of robot doubles, Aradius stalled Jack while teleporting the rest of the trolls to the lab. We see Karkat's awakening on Prospect just moments before this new demon destroyed it, and he recognized the creature as a version of Jack Noir. Finally, we glimpse Jade falling through a field of snow, a look of confusion or wonder upon her face. As Karkat puts it, by prototyping their first guardian, the kids have created an effectively unbeatable end boss. How unbeatable? Well, Dave's bro now lies dead in a pool of blood, Dave's sprite is missing, and Jack Noir has taken bro's sunglasses and little Cal as trophies commemorating his victory. On post-apocalyptic Earth, WV remembers that he found his treasured ring, pulling it from the river where John's dream self dropped it. Now, in fact, WV puts together that the boy he saw on the battlefield back then and the boy he's been watching on the command screens are the same person, and rushes off to his old terminal to give John more guidance. However, John is distracted by the earlier talks with Rose and Karkat, and in his frustration, WV accidentally locks himself in the exile station. Vriska messages John to tell him she was the one who put him to sleep, resulting in the Beck prototyping, and explains her logic thusly. Since Jack was already in the troll's session, his creation was a foregone conclusion, and so by inserting herself into the predetermined moment of his creation, she has laid thematic groundwork for her ultimately being the one who defeats him. Now she is training John to be her accomplice in taking down the big bad of their story, and urges him to use his know-how to escape the wave of green fire spiraling down on him. In the Exile Station, WV fears for John's life and commands him repeatedly to do the Windy Thing and save himself. John cannot do the Windy Thing until suddenly he can, summoning a huge gust of air that blows out all the fires on Loas. Meanwhile, Jade awakens on her planet, known as the Land of Frost and, finally revealing the garbled word in Kanaya's land, frogs. 
Lofaf is blanketed in snow and a bunch of frozen frogs, and a portentous poem written by screen actor Charles Dutton suggests part of Jade's quest will be thawing the land by activating the dormant volcano, known in-game as a construct called the Forge. In the past, long before the game began, Jade has another conversation with Feferi. Yet the conversation goes off track as Jade realizes she actually remembers having this talk before. I'm sorry I lied to you just a few seconds ago, but this isn't actually the past at all. Feferi explains that Jade is asleep and they are once again in a dream bubble, which now resembles an old memory. However, these memories are not beholden to playing out as they did, and so Feferi shows up in Jade's room to hang out. Smiling brightly and with unusual empty white eyes, Feferi announces one additional fact. She is now dead. Jade wakes up even more disturbed and then has to fight a teleporting Beck-powered imp. Beck-sprite intervenes to help, but unlike the other sprites, he turns out to be incapable of speech. Jade receives her first exile commands from PM, but Beck-sprite guards Jade by blowing up the exile terminal, just like we saw back in Act 3. Remember when that happened? On post-apocalyptic Earth, PM feels ambivalent about being named the ruler of the Exile Society, but WQ comforts her. Jade chats with a future Dave, who has mastered time travel in managing the Alpha timeline, and now steps in to take over server player duties for the absentee John. Meanwhile, present Dave chats with Rose, explaining that on her advice, he looked into the furthest ring beyond the session and was pretty freaked out by the Outer Gods. However, he was pretty sure he heard them screaming, crying for help. Rose concurs, explaining the gods are being atemporally massacred and that the threat the session has unleashed has spilled outward to threaten not just one game, but the perpetuation of all reality. The gods would like Dave to meet with them again so they can help him make a map to navigate the furthest ring, which exists between all game sessions and outside of all space and time. Rose explains that following this map will lead to the Green Sun, a colossal star that is nearly twice the mass of the universe, which Rose will then destroy with the tumor, which is not a treasure, as she told John, but a bomb meant to detonate at the end of their game's reckoning and clear out the Null Session. Rose will sacrifice her dream self to accomplish this goal, which will depower the game's first guardians and render Jack vulnerable. Rose also mentions that she has arrived at this plan with help from Doc Scratch in the Trolls universe, who wants to die to summon his master, and as a first guardian, he would similarly be depowered by the Green Sun's destruction. Dave thinks this plan is dubious. Kanaya contacts Rose to express her own reservations, saying that there is a point in the future of the timeline, but before the Scratch itself, that Rose goes dark in the Trollian viewfinder. Urging Rose to call off her quest, she explains Aridin has approached her, desperate to learn more about and also to debunk Rose's claims vis-a-vis -vis the reality of magic. To keep him occupied, Kanaya made him a science wand, not really as a threat, uh, but mostly to take care of him and keep him from bothering her. Jade is contacted by Tavros, who commiserates with her more over the loss of his dream self. He explains that he spent much of the troll's adventure asleep after something disturbing happened to him. Rather than talk about that, though, he asks Jade if he can psychically commune with Bexprite with the aim of using him to fight Jack. He explains he did something similar once before when Jade was a child and accidentally discharged a flintlock pistol. 
Tavros jumped in to control Beck, who was, anyway, teleporting the bullet away from Jade, sending it straight into the heart of her grandpa. Tavros explains that taking charge like this is a marker of his growing self-esteem, and he confesses his crush on Jade. Jade, upset for multiple reasons, shuts him down. Vriska, who has been observing all of this, mocks Tavros for being so pitiful, but then thanks him for giving her the idea of practicing their cross-session psychic powers by working earlier in the kid's timeline. Vriska now reveals that every instance of Jade's narcolepsy in the story thus far was in fact Vriska herself practicing her sleep-inducing powers. Vriska also alleges that Bexbright would not fight Jack Noir anyway, since it was Noir and his purpo agents who created Beck to begin with, and she should know, since as she also now reveals, she was psychically controlling the courtyard droll when he pointed out Rose's meow journals to the draconian dignitary. Tavros is enraged by Vriska's villainy and vows to fight her. Vriska isn't afraid, accepting the challenge and referencing again the horrible incident that left Tavros morose during their game session. With his jousting lance in hand, Tavros sets out to find the evildoer. Vriska briefly checks in on a future moment where Jade is looking through a fourth wall, where we glimpse Andrew Hussey, also apparently being mind-controlled by Vriska, writing Falcor from The NeverEnding Story. Falcor has flashing billiard ball eyes for some reason, and Hussey howls in triumph as the luck dragon barfs all over the bullies who presumably chased A.H. into the attic earlier. Meanwhile, John is blown by his windy powers into a salamander village, where Vriska informs him that he has reached a point in the game where he will only accrue experience and level up as his dream self. She guides him to a special game construct called a quest bed and explains he needs to take an important nap on it, offering to psychically put him to sleep. John agrees, Vriska puts him to sleep, and then Jack Noir appears, stabbing John through the chest. In the Exile Station, W.V. panics as John appears to die, entering the command for John to rise up. On Loas, the fireflies descend from the clouds and cover John's corpse. On the battlefield, John's dream self appears atop a mesa whose design mirrors his quest bed. In the past, W.V. witnesses this moment as well. The power of the wind blows over the battlefield, and John's dream self assumes the wounds of John's waking self, then rises into the air, glowing with golden light as the injuries are miraculously healed. Skya erupts into a cosmic light show that is visible to all of the other kids on their respective planets. John's dream self awakens, assuming a new outfit with a long blue hood, and back on post-apocalyptic Earth, WV catches one last glimpse of Jack Noir before the terminal shuts off for good, and the 612th day of Homestuck comes to an end. At what point do you think your summary will become longer than the episode itself? Um, it might happen pretty soon. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, a lot of plot in this one. Uh, kinda. Sort of. Right? A lot That's of incidents. That's the weird thing. A lot of incidents. There you go. It's a lot like uh, you're reading some Dickens novel. Mm -hmm. And uh, like every time he goes up and down that street, something does happen. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> uh, at some point, they're going to fall down Hellshaft. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, I think, I mean, I don't know. I've committed to summarizing these things, and mm -hmm. we'll we'll see how it goes. I I know how this goes, right? I, I know how this story falls out, and I knew mm -hmm. kind of what I was signing up for. And here I am, doing this for you, 
Not for Steve, like some other show. I'm doing it for you, listener. Oh, I thought you were doing it for me, because well, I will be honest. They're big, there are parts now of this that I just don't know what's happening. Well, that's, that's also good. I guess I'll do it for you, Cameron. Um, Thank you. <clears throat> I think that's an interesting point that you raise, uh, because, uh, again, this speaks to a kind of difference between serial and archival reading. Uh, the experience of reading this in real time was in fact very confusing. Uh, I am uh, using my, you know, boundless omniscience of the story to backfill certain details that don't get clarified in the story until much later, right? And these are kind of uh, uh, maybe not not huge things, right? But sort of just like big picture things as like, uh, in between these two shots, what on earth is happening? Right. Uh, uh, what is going on in any of the flashes where there's no time for kind of expository dialogue to clarify things? Uh, you know, what's going on with the furthest ring, which has been mentioned like very briefly in, in previous pages, uh, but hasn't been foregrounded in any way that an archival reader might know immediately what we're talking about. Uh, and to the benefit of the archival reader, the story is done, so you can just keep reading and eventually get to the parts where things get filled out. Um, but you and I are kind of going, you know, we're, we're touch and go. Uh, that's one thing. Um, and then the other thing to kind of, I guess, underscore here is that when you were reading this serially, people were keeping track of these details for you, right? There's a whole reading community of people who were uh, sort of tracking, like, their topics of personal interest or like questions that they had. And so when someone popped up and said like, hey, what's up with these outer gods? Uh, there would be a couple of people who could be like, oh, well, previously we've seen this, this and this about the squiddles, blah, 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 blah. Right. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, well, not interestingly enough, uh, unsurprisingly enough, uh, there are a number of outstanding questions in this story still. Um, and here I'm going to uh, do a new little segment that I may or may not do on a recurring basis, but just because this is the, this in reading the Something Awful thread, uh, this is the point where I uh, encountered for the first time what I remember as just like long form, like pages and pages of discussion of everyone kind of running through what are all of the unknowns in this story and then trying to uh, make their cult shots. Mm. So here are some things that everyone in the thread is discussing. Uh, they are discussing the trolls hemospectrum, trying to figure out how that works. Are there only uh, 12 kind of slots on it or are there uh, gradations in between like the trolls that we've seen? Um, is there a 13th troll? Because, uh, you know, the, there are actually 13 Zodiac signs, Cameron, uh, even though traditionally most people only know about 12, there's, there's a 13th one, Ophiuchus. And even back at the beginning of act five, when the trolls were being introduced, there was a lot of sort of speculation, like, is there going to be a 13th troll? Where's that 13th troll? Oh no, there's no 13th troll, but because this is Homestuck, there may still be a 13th troll somewhere, right? Um, it's Andrew Hussey. Yeah, maybe. Some, that's a thing. Direct post from the thread. Someone says that. The 13th troll is Andrew Hussey. That was me. 
I've gone back in time. Yeah. I've backdated my posts. Uh, people are trying to figure out all of the uh, cla- like the character classes, right? Uh, uh, Knight and so on and so forth. Like we've had Witch also, uh, Rose as a Seer. Uh, people mm-hmm. are trying to figure these out for the kids, um, which I think are actually on lock. We got all of those. I think Nana Sprite told us all of those titles basically uh, in Act 2 maybe. Um, I think so. But everyone's trying to figure them out also now for the trolls because we're starting to get those sort of piecemeal, right? Um, uh, just little bits. Uh, uh, like, for instance, we know that Carcat is a knight now because mm-hmm. at one point uh, WV is trying to stop or like uh, 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 oh, WV a- uh, asks John through the terminal, like, are you are you speaking with the thief? And then the narrative responds, no, he's talking to the knight. And that's when he's talking to Carcat. So now we know that uh Carcat is a knight. Uh, Vriska is therefore implicitly the thief. Yeah, it's some. It's uh, somewhere in a discussion too. Mm-hmm. Like someone says it in in a chat. Yeah, about Carcat. So everyone is trying to sort of like uh, uh, lock those down. Um, people are theorizing about the horror terrors. Uh, like, what are they? What are they doing? Uh, there's like all these theories that they are like uh, uh, players from previous games who have been like shunted outside of their game sessions and have mutated into these vast, horrible monsters, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is just I, I don't even quite know where that comes from. But like that's that's a sort of topic that comes up in the thread and it gets some steam for it. Uh, who is Lord English? Uh, because the, you know, people have been wondering up until this point, like, is the thing that entered the troll session Lord English? Uh, well, it turns out it's Jack Noir, but is Jack Noir Lord English? Is he going to become Lord English or is Lord English someone else entirely? Uh, who is Bilius Slick? This is not a term that I have said on this show thus far, but Bilius Slick is the name of uh, the frog god that uh, everyone on Purpo hates. This is why, well, uh, for whatever reason, the the denizens of Purpo um, think frogs are anathema. And we now have Jade's planet, which is covered in frogs. So we know that frogs are probably somehow important to the game in a way that Purpo doesn't like. Uh, and there is something called Bilius Slick. Uh, what is that? It's it's some sort of frog god. That's all we know. Uh, who is Jade's pen pal? Remember that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jade has a pen pal who is responsible for this damn bunny running around. Uh, who is Jade's pen pal? Well, maybe Jade's pen pal is the 13th troll. Uh, maybe <gasps> Jade's pen pal is somehow Grandpa Harley. Uh, maybe Jade's pen pal is Lord English. Um, I, I thought Jade's pen pal was Feferi <laughs> at this point, right? Now that we know that her and Feferi have had a bunch of conversations. Uh, but the pen pal wrote in green text. Oh, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Get that out of here. And used the uh, uh, phrase uh, kicking Christ in a dirty diaper. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I forgot that that we actually got chat from the pen pal. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and it wasn't just alluded to. Um. So just some some other uh, discussions. Is Rose turning evil? This is a thing that people have been discussing since uh, like the end of Act Four. Like that's that's been a, a little thread that's come up, and it comes up really hard here and now uh, to the degree that John turns around in the comic and says to Rose, "Like, hey, are you turning evil?" 
Yeah, I that's something that is notable kind of across this reading in particular is that now people are just saying things that are, that are so far out of any kind of characterization and are just like an excuse to elaborate fan theories or the plot. Mm-hmm. That happens a bunch of times in what we read for today. Yes, it really does. So uh, is Rose turning evil? Uh, what is the definition of evil? Is <laughs> Is Vriska evil? Thread, thread locked after 10,000 posts. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking, right? Because that is a question that someone ultimately poses during this discussion is like, well, what is evil, right? Like, like is Rose evil because she's apparently working against the game? Uh, does that mean that we think the game is good? Uh, is Vriska evil? Did Vriska actually have any sort of choice in what she's done in this reading uh, with, you know, creating uh, uh, the what uh, seems to be the ultimate villain? Um, does Vriska deserve uh, does Vriska deserve comeuppance? Didn't Vriska already receive her comeuppance when she got uh, beaten up by a robot? Uh, these are all uh, things that everyone in the thread is sort of like debating, and they do this over m multiple pages. Great. One other thing I wanted to show you then to sort of outline uh, some other Homestuck stuff. Uh, you have archives, right, for SA? Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, of course. Yes. Of course I have archives. So... One of the things that's happening in the thread that I haven't talked about is that uh, people are taking the artwork from the comic and making uh, avatars out of it. Um, and lots of people are getting Homestuck avatars, people who really like the comic and are posting in the thread. There's this kind of like uh, 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 ideal goal that people have, which is like one day we will have a page in this thread uh, that is everyone has a Homestuck avatar, right? Like the 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 Homestuck avatar page will will finally come about. Um, so that's happening. The other thing that is happening is people on the forums are seeing all of these Homestuck avatars and like coming into the thread and being like, OK, I've seen all of these avatars. Like, tell me, like, what is Homestuck? What's up with this thing? Why is why are all of these people reading it? Um, I want to drop in uh, the avatar repository post for you, Cameron. Mm -hmm. So this is oh, I've, I'm looking at it. OK, I'm looking at it right this very moment. Yeah. So this is a post in the thread um, where someone is keeping track of all of the avatars that have been made because it's th like these aren't just people aren't making these themselves. Some of them are, but there are people in the thread who just like every new page, like pull the images out or put like decompile the flashes and make avatars out of them in case anyone wants them. So uh I don't know any thoughts on on this avatar post. That's uh, it's it's all of the unclaimed avatars in the thread thus far. Yeah, it's a very live journal. You know, this is this is very much of a of a different era, right? When like a new music video would come out or a new movie would come out on live journal um, or, you know, come out in the world. People on live journal in like fan communities would do this where they would just make like. 20 image, you know, 20 little. Um, AVIs and put them together and uh, allow people to use them. And uh, I, it seems to be I don't I don't think people are doing this anymore, right? Uh, if they are, it's not happening in spaces that I'm seeing. Um, but I also this, this was kind of everywhere in like online stuff mm -hmm. back in back around this era, a little bit earlier than this, I would say. But mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of like. The fan creation being like a little mask that someone else could put on and you'd be like, hey, I made that. That's cool. Credit, credit please. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. And you would like 
uh, on like in like live journal communities, you would comment and you would be like, "Hey, I'm going to take this. Is that okay?" Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah, I feel like uh, uh, avatars or PFPs, as a lot of people call them now, um, have shifted in kind of their weight. I mean, the, the the big thing about live journal is that you could have a different icon for every post, right? You could uh, have posts organized by icon. This is the icon that I use when I'm fearing uh, feeling irritable. This is the icon that I use when I'm posting about my chemical romance. Um, and uh, nowadays it feels like one, if you're on like social media, um, it's more common to have like an actual picture of yourself as as uh, an avatar. Um, but then also if you have a piece of artwork, it is either like sometimes someone's like, like actual key art from a a property, or it's like something you've commissioned, uh, or that a friend has made for you of your favorite character or of your OC. Um, and this isn't, or it's like you, you directly go to an artist and you're like, Hey, I would like to commission you for a profile picture of this particular character from this property or, or what have you. Um, I don't see a lot of like, you know, here's the new uh, Marvel movie. Here are all of my cool like screen caps of whoever. Right. Like, I don't know who's in those movies. I don't care about Marvel. Um, uh, What's a what's this? Who's a superhero in a Marvel movie, Cameron? Oh, Junk Lord. Okay, Junk Lord. Uh, Here's like, you know, uh, 15 variations on the shots of Junk Lord we got in the latest trailer. Like, people go nuts, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So that's sort of interesting. Uh, Yeah, well, I feel like just just one one thing there. Yeah, because, like, I think you're exactly right. Like, in this era, it would be like, I'm going to rotate through my, like, 10 different icons uh Mm -hmm. in my like as my like picture on twitter right my like Mm -hmm. user icon and like i don't i don't i don't really see people changing those nearly as much as they like did uh back in the day Mm -hmm. but i guess this is like on in twitter it's the banner image Mm -hmm. Uh, people are very and they you know having the banner image credit in the uh bio and all that kind of stuff I, i guess that's the closest thing to it but but you know, how, how many times you're actually looking at someone's banner image, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it feels like a little bit of a, this is like the last gasp of this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and I just, I, it was a thing that I haven't brought up until now, uh, but I wanted to, because it is, as I just said, right. It is critical for understanding like how this thing uh, is starting to pull more people in, right. When you are a mm-hmm. fan of this thing, uh, you make yourself into an advertisement for it. Yeah, I mean, that's why I, I knew that there were little gray kids, but I had no idea what they were about. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's because I've been inundated with images of these little gray kids. <laughs> um. So, yeah. And probably, I'll be honest, if I'd seen some of these, like, much more interesting images <laughs> over the years, I probably would have been more interested in Homestuck. <laughs> um, uh, are there any thoughts that you have, Cameron, that you want to, like get out up here at the top because uh otherwise we can really get into the meat of it yeah i don't i don't think um i'm looking here at my notes here to see what's up so the the chat logs that are in this section that we read here i know i think i said this in the last uh recording that we did as well but this is becoming pure melodrama Mm -hmm. like the conversation between two car cats one of whom is hitting on jade and one of whom is not hitting on jade and then jade like very patiently w- working through her feelings in a un 
like a, a, a totally uh, like open way, mm-hmm. like unironic, totally open. Hey, this is how I'm feeling and this is how you're making me feel and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. It is just it's melodrama. Like mm-hmm. it is. This is the way that soap operas work. And I don't say that in any way to be dismissive of it, but to say that that is very different from what was going on at the beginning of this comic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but because, right, like you are very transparently now supposed to identify the characters that you like and then be very invested in their emotional depth and growth. Mm-hmm. Like that is that is a key part of this thing at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really having forcing. Yeah, yeah. Forcing, I guess is the right word. It's forcing me to change the way that I engage with it a little bit because up until this point, I don't really care about that. Um, I think these characters are interesting, but something that's very... Something that has not made me particularly invested in them is that they're all, at best, two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And one might think, oh, hey, here's more emotional content. Of course, they're going to become three-dimensional. Ho, ho, ho. Let me let me uh, interject here, my friend, because something like melodrama, which is all about heightened emotions, uh, which is all about the kind of um, social interactions that emotions make us have, even against our own will sometimes, right? You know, what will I do for love uh, and what will I do for hate? Um, those things are also very two-dimensional, right? The, those soap operas don't require three-dimensional people mm-hmm. um, uh, with who are highly reflective. And so what's interesting, I guess, to me is that the, the two-dimensional characters that have existed up to this point have been two-dimensional so that they can fit into a game structure and be, like, funny along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can't be full people because full people can't really exist within the framework that the comic is asking for. Now what we're getting is two-dimensional people, but the two dimensions are different ones, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if we had X and Y characters before, now we have X and Z characters mm-hmm. where they're getting a huge amount of emotional development, um, but are lacking in, in ways that feel realistic or are lacking in ways that feel like, um, uh, I don't know. I, they have like a very clear, each of them have a very clear, clear schematic of connection to one another. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the troll romance information, mm-hmm. right? Is that how they fit into a grid of interactions with one another. So, so they can't be too complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they can only have more information happen. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that what, whereas we were once buried in game rules information, which unfortunately has also come back, but we were (laughs) once buried absolutely in that. And now we are going to be buried in what are the couple lines of connection between all of these characters and how, uh, what is their emotional state at any given time at any given uh, time and space moment within the comic? So Mm -hmm. it's, it's nonlinear in with that. So Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I feel like it's just going to change the way that I, uh, engage with it. You know, I, I think I, we've seen a little bit of feedback on the show so far, right? Where neither of us are particularly engaged with these emotional things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that, you know, like a kind of historical or, or a archival reason for that is that we are really only seeing that become the primary mode of interaction now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you and I were chatting a little bit uh, about how that's that's shifting in the the fandom itself too, where that really is becoming a primary motivator for a lot of people. So that was kind of my only big thought here at the top. There's some great gags that happen here, and some <laughs> some like what I would consider now at this point classic moments. But I think we can probably you know talk about them when they come up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, I uh, wanted to bring up this this precise kind of uh, deal, uh, specifically with regard to Jade, because in, in the last part episode, we talked about how, you know, like John's written differently now. Rose is now a character in a high fantasy novel. Dave, Dave is just a, a full grown man. Uh, Jade is maybe some of the most explicit like uh, gear shift that we get. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she she is now like a 16 year old girl in a young adult novel mm-hmm. like she's, she's with, with two time traveling uh goofballs fighting over <laughs> yes and see like this isn't to say that i dislike the relationships uh i think these conversations between jade and the car cats are very very funny right like th- th- like this is an engine that is amusing to me and i am uh you know i like car cat i like jade uh but there's not a lot of stake in it for me um mm-hmm. Because uh, especially, you know, historically, it is feeling like things are changing. And what's happened with Jade uh, is she starts out as uh, bubbly and silly and goofy. Uh, She's always chipper. Uh, You know, I think I I described her back when she well, I don't think she was named at that point. Um, But she was kind of like the person who was almost irritating in how cheerful they could be. And Mm -hmm. now she is just like totally upset right uh she has lost and this is made uh this is made like a uh, surface level true right uh like the, i think one of the things you're getting at about these characters feeling like they're still two-dimensional but the dimensions have just shifted is that the plot in which they exist right the narrative in which they exist uh uh, is constantly making their exterior world kind of like uh, uh match up with their interior state Right. There's always mm-hmm. this kind of like emotions are are very rarely internal. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, critical to melodrama. Right. Yes. The, the full externalization of all emotions. Mm-hmm. If if uh, if if you are so enraged that it's going to change your life, your house is probably going to catch on fire. Right. In a melodrama. Um, if you I, and this is uh, to give a like a very clear example um, this is why so many people read, like academics read, The Wire as a melodrama. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's kind of a primary reading coming out of uh, some circles at this point. And the reason for that is it's like McNulty is having a hard time at his job. He can't get all the pieces in place. Every night, McNulty goes and drinks himself into a stupor beneath a bridge, right? Like, mm-hmm. there is, like, his exactly what you're saying, right? The plot mechanics of of what is actually happening the events themselves and their structure is 100% mirrored in the emotional the externalized emotional state of the character Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah you're 100% right yeah and so uh, I think one of the things that happens something we can think about um, is the way that a shift in a character uh, between two sets of two dimensions right uh, reads as uh, increasing complexity rather than a change in emphasis because I think this is one of the things that happens with people who approach this archivalry, or archivalry, Jesus. Um, now, now you're homestuck. Uh-huh. <laughs> now you're going to use the archivalry <laughs> to uh, to create a long-form plan of uh, a mischief and murder. That's my that's my violent job from Alternia, from the uh, bonus <laughs> episode. I'm an, I'm an archivalrist. Um, uh, so... Uh, uh, you know, uh, I think when you approach this as an archive, uh, this character starting out one way and then uh, suddenly like uh, being forced into a kind of new set of plot developments that make them uh, uh, 
occur or happen in ways that they weren't happening or occurring before um, presents this illusion of depth. What's that? It's it's time for an ad break. Yep, that's right. I'm here, like always, uh, with Cameron. And we're inserting ourselves into our own story to make ourselves more relevant than our other past selves to you, because we're going to tell you that uh, we are reader supported or listener supported. Jesus, uh, we're listener supported. And, uh, you know, this show, Homestuck Made This World, if you're enjoying it, it would not exist without people like you who uh want to listen to us talk about all of these weird abstruse uh things that are both like plot points in a comic but also uh weird thoughts about like technology and society and uh i guess theosophical stuff uh if you go to uh patreon.com slash range touch you can kick us a couple dollars a month um and it would be greatly appreciated it means that we have uh you know the ability to make time to sit down and read all of this stuff uh for me to read all of the sort of out of uh text stuff that i'm following up on uh and have a, a good time talking about it um if you give us uh, $10, you'll get access to the Homestuck Made This World bonus episodes where Cameron and I are both kind of working through like Homestuckian paratexts. For instance, we've watched uh, Con Air, uh, we've read Problem Sleuth, and uh, most recently, uh, if you uh, you know get on board now, you'll get our bonus episode for The NeverEnding Story, the novel by Michael Inda, uh, where we talk at length about all of the little bits and pieces of that story that get pulled out and put into Homestuck on kind of a broad structural level. And I think it would be really, really interesting, right? If you're a person, if you're a Homestuck fan, especially who uh, knows the comic, but has never picked up the never ending story, I think that that would be an extremely interesting thing for you to listen to. Um, and if you just like when I get down onto like all the weird stuff about like the plot mirroring author reader interactions, like the never-ending story is full of that, so you would have a really good time. Um, other things that you can do, though, uh, of course, is tell people that you know uh, about this show and tell them that they can listen to it. Uh, I've heard uh, uh, quite a few people say that listening to this show is a good way to uh, suppress the urge to reread Homestuck for yourself if it's something that you're familiar with but uh, and are reflecting on. Um, if you don't want to get, you know, go back to the old you, then you can uh, come imagine being the old you with the new us's. Uh, and then the other thing you can do is leave us a review on your podcast uh, platform of choice that always puts eyes on us. If you leave us a five star review on uh, Apple Podcasts, then Cameron has promised to uh, read one or maybe sometimes two of them. Did you say two, Cameron? I think I'm going to read two this time. Okay, yeah. Today, today we're going to read two. Uh, read two of them on air uh, so we can hear from all of you out there in, in listener land. So take it away, Cameron. It's from IggyD42. This is the only way I will ever get any modicum of context for when my irrevocably homestuck friends talk about this thing. So there you go. That's mm -hmm. one. And uh, New Lacanian, I'll guess... It, it, is the subject line? Uh, I'll, is that a, I'll guess with a question mark? Yeah. Okay. This is from Bardcraft. This podcast is making me want to stop procrastinating and try to read Lacan. There's <laughs> nothing I recommend less than doing that, by the way. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> 
<laughs> I know that's that's your your opinion. Uh, I can't. <laughs> that is my opinion. I, that's I, my professional uh, uh, vetted uh, doctoral opinion. I think it's very funny because I have actually talked about Lacan comparatively little throughout this show. Um, I think the most that I talked about Lacan was when I was explaining uh, Equius in, in his art. <laughs> well, so we uh, that's not the only the other the other. There's another review about Lacan. It's just a little bit too long. Oh, OK. To read on the show. But thank, <laughs> thanks. To every, thanks to everyone who leaves us a five star review. Much appreciated for it. If you want me to read your review up on the thing, leave us five stars. Let us know. The only way that we sequence up in the algorithm is someone leaving reviews. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you have a platform that allows you to review the show, to give it five stars and leave a little review, please do that because that helps us out a whole bunch. It it gets uh, more visibility in the apps. It, it rises us in the ranks, so I get weird emails. It's like, you're in the top ten leisure podcasts in Belarus. <laughs> like that kind of thing happens every now and again to mm-hmm. us people um and we're trying to you know we're trying to get up there mm-hmm. we're trying to displace the belarusian uh uh original cultural context <laughs> we're gonna make we're gonna make all the youth care about all those podcast listening uh youth care about homestuck yeah. homestuck is going to remake this world yeah it will uh, but uh, I think that's it I think we are uh, back to the episode yeah yeah back to our irrelevance woo uh we have hit like we finally hit vriska time uh in the thread like for like Mm. we you know i think people uh think of uh you know you think of homestuck and then you're like oh man the vriska discourse right the people going around and around about vriska uh weirdly enough and this was one of the things that was very surprising and sort of refreshing to kind of have uh going back over like the something awful thread is that people have had like strong feelings about vriska certainly Um, but they're also, they were also kind of like, uh, corralled. It's like, oh, Vriska's, Vriska's a huge jerk and she's doing bad things, but she's also kind of like, uh, funny or, or, you know, endearing in some other ways. Um, and people would have like little debates about that, but it wouldn't take up a lot of space in the thread. And it's this, uh, specific set of updates where Vriska, like, um, retcons herself right into all of the prior stuff that you have read that really sets people off uh, because suddenly it's like I mean and, and this is this is by design right like she is a character who is retconning herself into a story uh, and this is just so clearly part of what we've talked about before of uh, like Vriska being designed to incite debate but now it is happening not just in like her little like circle of troll friends she has now affected the entire narrative of the comic up until this point and so what do we do with that has the comic jumped the shark uh, what the hell is Hussey thinking Um you know, th- things of that nature. Uh, did you have any sort well, of... Well, <laughs> yeah, Hussey is literally emceed by Vriska. Mm-hmm. Well, in that, so that uh, uh, page happens um, a couple days after someone in the Something Awful thread says, man, do you think Vriska is mind-controlling Hussey at this point? Hmm. Right? I want to read something from the author commentary. I, I promise you it's it's not too bad. And in fact, uh, one of the things I can say about the commentary uh, after having been pretty hard on it last time, uh, and it, it's just it goes to show like how often Hussey uh, themselves will change kind of their rhetorical modes. Um, 
it becomes basically just kind of uh, in the last part of this reading, the author commentary is a mixture of just kind of informative stuff, tidbits like, oh, here's kind of what I was thinking when this happened. And then uh, sort of like theorizing on their own characters, as I've talked about before, thinking like, OK, here's here's kind of like the dramatic arc of this character. And here's kind of like how you can see all the parts fitting together um, on Vriska. We have uh, this point. <clears throat> I remember some people. Uh, in parentheses, i.e. losers, were grousing about this reveal a little bit and that the story kept on revealing things that Vriska was responsible for all along, as if that wasn't totally great. My only regret is not making Vriska directly responsible for even more shit. I think some readers thought that reveal uh, reframed an interesting character trait of someone they liked, Jade and her narcolepsy, and made it feel less special, more artificial uh, and imposed on her, therefore making her a less interesting character in hindsight. But that's exactly what Vriska does. She steals certain int intangible qualities from other. Uh, she steals, you know, all this stuff relevance by making Jade uh, sleep all the time. She literally diminishes the relevance of Jade in the story. And in doing so, Vriska absorbs that stolen relevance directly into herself as if to say, see, I did this. I'm responsible for this thing about her you thought was special. It was me all along. And now you're forced to focus on uh, me more than her and also more than everyone else. Hmm. Yeah, so. Uh, when when I talk about like how Homestuck is constantly pushing stuff to the surface, this this is what I mean, where like there is a thing that is happening like in sort of the form of the story. Right. A, and uh, one of the other things I think I've wanted to mention here uh, is that if you've read comics at all for any amount of time, but also if you've read web comics, these dynamics are all very familiar. I guess I don't know what happened, what's happening in web comics now, but especially like the 2000s web comics that I was reading. Um, a new character would show up, uh, she or he or whatever, this new character uh, would would have a robot arm. Yeah, would have a robot arm and uh, then reveal that they had uh, actually caused all of the events in the story thus far. Um, and Hussey's mm -hmm. just reproducing that uncritically. It's really weird. Uh, no, but really what would happen, right, is that uh, the focus of a comic would change. Um, you know, I've talked before about uh, it, it wasn't uncommon to have something that started as a gag comic that then like worked its way up to like a high melodrama space opera with multiple dimensions and things like that. Um, but it also wasn't uncommon to have a character kind of appear uh, who was clearly favored by the author in some way uh, and represented kind of a, a shift in what the comic was about as that character became more central to the action. Um, so there's like a, a, a formal thing that Homestuck is doing that is not unique among web comics, but then like the story of Homestuck itself ends up being about the thing that is happening in the form of the web comic. Yes. Um, what has Vriska done, right? People, people are upset in the thread because Vriska has uh, apparently, um, you know, always been the source of Jade's narcolepsy. She was the one who uh, started uh, or like got Beck made by uh, mind controlling the courtyard droll. Um, so there is uh, touching on some of the uh, comments made in a previous part episode by Hussey about Vriska being kind of an author avatar character, right? Someone who who is uh, writing the story. We have that, right? There, there's a there's a way of reading these events as that. Uh, here is something that I think is uh, maybe more interesting. Um, Vriska is the Homestuck reader, 
she looks at a story that was predetermined, right? Uh, Beck was going to be created. Um, mm-hmm. And then she decides she's the one who's responsible for it. In the same way that you read Homestuck and, you know, I could have told you, Cameron, uh, that I, you know, named such and such a character or that, you know, uh, uh, when when Gamzee tried to ride his unicycle and then fell off of it, uh, that was me, Cameron. I did that because I'm the one who put in the reader command to tell Gamzee to ride the unicycle. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is what Vriska is doing, right? She has taken on like she's not just like taking relevance away from the characters. She is like uh, stealing what the readers of Homestuck think that they do, Uh, Mm. which is take this story that they have in front of them that is wholly predetermined. Remember, this is how the trolls interact with um, uh, uh, the timeline. Uh, she takes this story and she finds a thing that was always already going to happen. And then uh, she inserts herself and it turns out the ways that she has inserted herself into the story uh, was also already determined, right? Her insertion was there by design. Um, So Hussey has got a question on Formspring that I'll just uh, read here. When the kids contact the trolls, what determines the exact point on the trolls timeline they reach them at? For example, why did Jade get hold of Carcat at the exact moment she did rather than five minutes earlier or later uh, from his perspective? Um, Hussey responds, Trollian determines it. It is like an operator directing the transmission to the appropriate time. It, quote unquote, knows when the conversation was supposed to take place. Neither the kids nor the trolls have control over this. This is the Hmm. interface effect again, right? Vriska sees the interface effect and she's like, no, I'm doing this because I choose to, even though the interface has already uh, designed and determined all of my inputs. Yeah, it's uh, Grogramon again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, This is going to get even weirder, though, Cameron. So uh, do you remember uh, what Aradia said uh, at the end of Act 5, Act 1? I'm a robot. I'm dead. (laughs) Uh, Vriska killed me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hate RPGs or games for girls. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, yeah, she said she said some of those things. Um, But this is so when we're thinking about historical Michael, this is a thing that I like put together immediately. And it's one of the Mm -hmm. things that keeps me reading was uh, was historical. Michael constantly say, look, look at me. I'm being so historical right now. Yeah, I was always saying that. So uh, Jack Noir with Beck powers has shown up in the troll session. We know that's what happened at the end of Act Five, Act One now. And as Aradia describes this, she says, you know, this this person was uh, this a, a demon, right? This force was uh, uh, chased out of hiding and denied us entry into, and I quote, the universe that we had created. Which again, seemed, and at the time I thought this, right, seemed to echo uh, the fan base's sort of perspective on Hussey taking away reader commands. Mm. And so now we have Jack Noir who has entered into the troll session and has done this thing, right? Has stopped the trolls from entering the universe that they created. Jack Noir uh, first got named, uh, you will remember, uh, when uh, we saw that brief uh, glimpse of those like orange fingers on the keyboard, which turned out to be Andrew Hussey's fingers. Uh, This happens right before Andrew Hussey stops taking reader commands and then Jack ascends. This is all stuff that gets confirmed for me in the author commentary that I haven't talked about uh, explicitly up until this point, which is that Hussey says uh, villainous characters in Homestuck exist on the meta level of the story. 
Um, the closer they are to like the figure of the author, the more evil they are going to be. And so at this point in Homestuck, I realize uh, that something really weird is happening here where uh, there was a, there was, you know, there were feelings in the readership about uh, reader commands not being taken anymore. And we've already had sort of uh, Hussey's response saying, like, listen, I was choosing whatever I wanted. You really didn't have control anyway. Hussey uh, right there presenting themselves as their own kind of operator. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh. We have like these feeling like this feeling of entitlement or like feeling of investment into the world that we have created that an author uh, through some way like comes in and like stops us from our full enjoyment or from our full access. Um, but the truth of the matter really seems to be that all of these uh, modes of access were predicated on interfaces uh, that were designed by people who weren't us, right? All of our, again, to, to uh, evoke Vriska, all of our points of intersection uh, were predetermined. And so uh, I and I'm uh, historical Michael is like, what the hell is happening here? It feels like a. Uh, uh, a really weird move to start thematizing all of these uh, uh, tensions with your own fandom. So, so <laughs> Jack Noir is like a sublimated hussy. Yes, in this in the schematic that hussy themselves have have, have uh, laid out for us. Yes. Think here of uh, uh, Gamork in The NeverEnding Story, the werewolf, who says mm -hmm. uh, that he was a man who passes between uh, the real world and Fantastica. If you aren't listening to the Homestuck Made This World bonus episodes, uh, last release we had our bonus episode where Cameron and I discussed uh, the novel The NeverEnding Story by Michael Inda. Uh, and there is a lot of stuff uh, that we're going to continue to unpack where Hussey is, is uh, taking parts of that story and putting them down here. But I think, yeah, I think that this is you are correct, right? Uh, uh, Jack Noir is a, is a sublimated hussy in some way. The uh, yeah, and and you know, of course, I wrote down several times. Uh, Vriska is just exonime. You, you mean uh, Zaide? Z who's exonime? I I I think you just made up that person. No, no, that's maybe a JRPG. <laughs> Or maybe D and D somewhere in there. That is a real. That's a real thing. I didn't just make that up. But yes, exactly. Um, is the kind of. Uh, I, I mean, we already knew that. We discussed that in that episode. But especially here, right? Like uh, the treatment of John. That's the exact. That's the same relationship. Mm -hmm. And ta and uh, Tavros to some uh, mm -hmm. to some extent as well. Right, and Tavros is interesting because he is uh like the foil for Vriska because he tries to do the same move of like inserting himself into the story uh but his disastrous consequences are just disastrous they don't actually turn out uh it, they don't give John they don't give Jade superpowers right Vriska gets John uh killed and then he gets superpowers and oh my god uh, I should mention um between that moment like when John gets stabbed <laughs> Yeah, how did people take that? <laughs> Hussey did not post the subsequent flash for like 24 hours. People this wow. people lost their shit, right? Like this is when this is the point where people were like uh uh Vriska Vriska needs her come up and other people come in and say like Vriska already got her come up when she was beaten by Aradia. <laughs> um <laughs> 
And uh, someone like there's someone who uh, someone else says, you know, this is all just predetermined. None of this is compelling. Vriska doesn't really have a motivation here. She's just like being slotted into the the thing that's been scripted for her. And then someone else is like, well, yeah. And this is like this is an interesting character arc because she thinks she has power, but she doesn't really. And blah, 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 blah. And here's like how she can redeem herself. And then someone else quotes that and is just like, she killed John. <laughs> 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 well, so uh, I, I I dare not speak its name, of course, but I am very curious at this point. Is this Vriskors? Oh yes, right. Uh, we get oh, so there's no there's no like you know. I guess I was just I'm curious about like is there an inaugurating moment for Vriskors that has not occurred yet, or is this all Vriskors? I feel like this this is the moment where uh like the Vriska discourse like takes the takes its it's a, a germinal form or right maybe it's been germinal up until this point now it sprouts now it's grubbinal right right now that vriska is like interfering with the main plot quote unquote um we have uh people like again right this is designed to give you like strong reactions um mm-hmm. and then also uh i already mentioned that there are people who are like i hate vriska blah 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 and then there are people who are kind of like ride or die for vriska right they want to defend their favorite character in the thread uh one of the first this is the first time we get uh the line and i'm paraphrasing here but the, the sentiment if you dislike vriska you're a misogynist <laughs> <laughs> because she's just you just don't like her because she's a strong female character who's like taking charge of things the ultimate forum post uh-huh by the like they're they're the what that really took me back that that's really what the the laughter is not about the content it is about the form mm-hmm. which is like you just full-throated saying the most extreme axiomatic thing <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> and like someone is like, no, Risk is just a bitch. And then that same person responds and is like, did you know that that's a misogynist insult? Never mind that in the previous thread, we've switched threads, by the way, we finally got into a new thread, uh, the old one closed. Mm-hmm. But in the previous thread, when Vriska was introduced and she throws Tavros off that cliff, it was a full like two pages of just people saying that over and over and over again. So really, a, a, you know, kind of a shifting fandom here, too. Yes. Um, at least in this one pocket of the world. Mm-hmm. And this, too, I think, is part of the design of Vriska, right? Vriska, uh, as the ultimate troll, as Hussey has called her, um, gives gives the reader to some extent, I think, a script to follow. Mm-hmm. Right. Because uh, Vriska is so like uh, uh, dedicated to justifying everything that she does. Uh, you as the reader get kind of pulled into if you're a Vriska fan. Right. If you like Vriska uh, and you see someone who doesn't like Vriska for what are, you know, probably pretty good reasons uh, that you could acknowledge in good faith, you know, you can make them upset by doing what Vriska does and justifying her. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, uh, again, right. This, this is sort of like weird, um, almost not, not exactly designed identities in the sense of, uh, um, uh, Shira Chess's book, right? But these characters have kind of um, dispositions built into them uh, that facilitate your reaction to, or like facilitate certain types of fan responses or fan interactions. Yeah, I mean they—they they are. This is what Homestuck is, mm-hmm. right? I mean it—it it is 
we've been talking about it since episode one. They're recognizable character types. But again, this is another movement into melodrama, right? Like Vriska is uh creating oh, what is what is the what is the character is it like the spider woman i my my um character types from like noir and <laughs> melodrama uh that is atrophied since i had to read those books in graduate school right but mm-hmm. you know like there's like the spider woman the femme fatale mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the the uh what do you call it like the detective all these things right she she all of those come to, to exist within genres mm-hmm. right within genre fiction broadly right there are character types and those character types come uh, with prepackaged emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, you are supposed to um, enjoy the way they move in a particular kind of way. Um, uh, uh, who who is that lovable detective who's always talking about his wife? Oh, Columbo. Yeah, Columbo. Right, Columbo works because you know what the package. Right, the pa- and the package has very particular ways of alignment and disalignment. Mm-hmm. Um, Vriska has a very particular lines of alignment and disalignment mm-hmm. um, in a very two dimensional way, mm-hmm. and I mean it works. Right, like the melodrama works. Mm-hmm. It it functions. It functions really well. Um, character typology functions really well. We are living in the most dominant media discourse. Or you know, dominant media industries. Uh, 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 what do you call it? World since the 1930s, um, and uh, the character types that exist in Star Wars and in Marvel films are overriding literally everything. Like we are living in a Vriska condition, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, in mass media at this point, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the Disneyfication of of kind of everything, mm-hmm. and it comes with this kind of package of feelings you're supposed to have about these character types so that's all to say yeah i vriska is just a very successful version of this and probably in a way that none of the other characters are as successful Mm -hmm. i don't know what you're supposed to feel with tavros i know exactly what you're supposed to feel with vriska yeah tavros is very interesting because uh like he he is like very sad and pathetic and at the same time like uh like the, the narrative both like makes him that uh but then is also like it is not really uh endorsing fully this idea that Vriska has which is that he needs to be ground to dust essentially or something um which also uh again people uh, uh, accusing us of not caring about these relationships or me at least one of the sort of like most melancholy moments I've had during this read through is mm-hmm. thinking back to uh, act five, act one, where after Vriska does like her horrible thing where she tries to get Tavros to kiss her. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this really interesting moment where Vriska kind of just like I this was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done this, whatever. Like Tavros, do you want to go adventure in our stupid fantasy land? And so that's what they do. Right. And we know that that's we know now that it ends badly in some way. Uh, But there is like this weird brief moment where like Vriska and Tavros just can become kids who get along. uh, And and, like maybe have like, you know, I'm sure there were still like prickly stuff because of their personality profiles. But there's like uh, the, the narrative just like, you know, cuts out this entire chunk of where it seems like they were just they were just hanging out being teenagers together and now here we are like with them threatening to like duel to the death so i think that's sad yeah (laughs) it is um yeah also yes come on 
why Tavros got to fall down the stairs. Yes, right. So Tavros uh, has had his like legs amputated and replaced with ro- robot legs, um, which I don't know. Like that's a choice. Uh, and then mm-hmm. he can't use his robot legs well, so he's constantly falling downstairs. Something really interesting uh, also about Tavros, there's the long conversation between Tavros and Jade mm-hmm. where two great things happen. Mm-hmm. Well, not, not two great things. One very interesting thing and then one legitimately great thing. I'll talk about the great thing first. Uh, <laughs> so when Jade, Jade is a grubbling or whatever. Mm-hmm. I forget what word he uses, but he calls her something like a grubbling because he's, he's talking about how he has interacted with her way back in her past mm-hmm. when she was a child. And she's dual wielding flintlock pistols, <laughs> and she she uh, accidentally discharges one of them and is going to die. And uh, he uh, like animal controls Beck to then teleport the 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 gun in front of Grandpa, and then Grandpa gets killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That really got me. Uh, just like after all these like very heavy like emotional conversations and like is Rose going to destroy the universe or maybe she's going to protect the universe like all this stuff. It was very funny for it to be just like this like uh, murder gag. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very good. And um, and it's made even better by the fact that Tavros thinks by having killed grandpa he was helping because <laughs> yes. troll adults are so like uh, uh, mean that the troll uh, troll adults and troll children never interact. So he saw an adult living on Jade's <laughs> Island and was like, oh, of course, this guy was here to kill her. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes it's it's good it's a good a very i i don't think basically any of the moments so far that have been about like the wild and wacky differences between troll world and real world like i don't think any of those have been very interesting so far but this one i uh, that this is a good payoff for that system um and but the other conversation is uh uh Tavros is is talking about how his difference in self-esteem <laughs> Uh, you know that he was in a wheelchair and now he has legs and now now he has self esteem again. Mm-hmm. And it's you get more self esteem when you're not in a wheelchair. And what what was so imp- interesting to me about that conversation, right, is like as soon as you hear me say that, right, if you're not reading the comic uh, and you're this is the first time you're hearing that, you might be like, ugh, ugh, what's going on here, right? Uh, but this is another moment of of something you've already talked about so far, which is like the the surfacing the fandom interaction as text because immediately what happens is this like this like forum or twitter conversation right where jade's like i don't know if i'd put it that way yeah right there's this kind of autocritical moment where like this character says something that's like a little off um and it's like a little off because of this like you know troll to human um difference right and then jade immediately is like ah that might be problematic yeah <laughs> and and so there's a way that that the and i that kind of thing has happened a couple times over the last couple readings where hussy is bringing in like you know capital d discourse ideas you know fandom interactions around these characters and their capabilities and their feelings and then just making that text Mm -hmm. um and i imagine that 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 gets so much more complicated later on Mm -hmm. when you know i've got the physical epilogues i've not looked at them but i've got them and they're just books of text Mm -hmm. and i imagine all kinds of shit like that is gonna pop up (laughs) of like human real world opinions being voiced through characters from a distal relationship to real world humans. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> we'll see. We will see. It, it, I it, just tell me this: Am I going to end up reading chapters and chapters about like characters working through their own histories in this comic and about whether or not those things are problematic or not? You can just tell me. But the listeners, Cameron, what if they want to oh. be surprised? So that's yes. Okay. So uh, uh, touching then on uh, another aspect of this idea of scripts, I promised you this, that we would check in with historical Michael. I said one or two mm. part episodes ago that I had fallen silent because I was uh, busy with college. And by this point, uh, that's kind of lessened for me. Uh, and I come back to the thread. Uh, I'm not very pop. Like, I'm not a, 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 a prolific poster, really. Um, but I'm still here. And what is striking to me, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, character changes, uh, I'm not the same Michael anymore. I started like one of my first posts in in the old Homestuck thread, uh, and I'm I, I'm paraphrasing myself here, right? Uh, I said something like, "I'm I'm not an expert on Homestuck lore, but because someone had like asked a question, this was just after Act Four, someone asked a question, uh, and I thought that I could provide clarification. So I was like, well, I'm not really like up to date on all this stuff in the comic because I just started putting together that these things were happening. But here's what I think: I show up. In the thread now, I am uh, doing some like broad strokes theorizing about like big uh, sort of thematic things about the comic. I am citing what I am uh, like, you know, building my evidence off of. Like I am citing particular aspects of conversations in particular pages. Right. And sort of putting forth like uh, my perspective where I'm like, uh, based on all of this, here is what we know has to happen in kind of the near future. And here are some things that seem likely for that to happen. Someone then uh, uh, quotes me, takes issue with an aspect of my theory uh, and not correctly. Right. They actually misread me. Um and they're they're like very against like what it, like whatever it is that they think that I have said. I respond to this by saying that is not at all what I said. Uh, here, let me put it for you a different way. I re-explain what I said, and then I say, "But if you're insisting that I said this other thing, here's all the evidence in favor of this other theory that you don't want to happen that I never claimed would happen. But here's all the ways that it could happen." And I start citing those things. So you're into it. I'm into it. Uh, but like, what is that? Does that sort of behavior, that sort of stance remind you of anyone? Of anyone? Or any people? Like, what? what's my overall disposition suddenly now? Of a big nerd. Big, big fandom nerd. I mean, big fandom nerd, but like big fandom nerd who is uh, going to uh, just to annoy you, uh, put together mm -hmm. a mountain of evidence for a theory that he doesn't believe in. Uh, because he knows effort that, posting right to the, the, the effort posting uh, because he knows it's going to like irritate you because I'm proving I'm, I'm putting evidence toward a theory that I don't even believe in because it's going to make you angry. Right. Uh, this is more trollish behavior. Tro Historical Michael is transformed into trollish Michael. Mm hmm. Again, a two dimensional character becomes two dimensional in a different way. Yes, exactly. Uh, but I don't know. I just think uh, that's it was really interesting to like uh, come upon these posts because it's like this is uh, like I am posting with kind of a forthrightness that I did not have before. Right. Mm -hmm. I have uh, maybe gained my own little amount of self-esteem 
uh, and now I am uh, doing whatever. Uh, what, what year is this that this is occurring? Is this 2010? Yeah, this is late 2010. I was too mad about the Tea Party to post on the internet. Yeah. About Homestuck. Well, you maybe maybe you spent your life uh, being angry about better things than I did at this point. Uh, somewhere around. Wait, 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 this is the end of 2010? Yeah. Somewhere around here, I'm getting into a loud... A nearly physical altercation with a man at a town hall meeting. <laughs> wow! <laughs> like so, somewhere in the like October November. Yeah, um, I'm like getting into a like loud shouting match with a libertarian. Yeah, for sure. I, that was not a better use of my time, by the way. <laughs> like it, it, I should have been posting about Homestuck. I'd be a happier man today. <laughs> I was maybe only like a year and a half uh, into my recovery from being a libertarian. So mm. mm-hmm. uh, that that tells you something about my life, I guess. Well, that's um, why you had to take the long posting break. You had to really get your <laughs> shit together. I mean, really? Yes. Right. Um, uh, and I guess uh, this is as good a transition as any uh, into uh, the moment of like what I said earlier at the beginning was uh, the moment where I was like, okay, this story is just totally something different now. Um, And it's not necessarily what I wanted it to be or what I thought it was going to be, but I am still really interested in seeing what happens. And that's the moment where John becomes a God. Hmm. When he does the windy thing. Well, no, no, no. Or after he does the windy thing. Yes. Right. Specifically John's death and resurrection when he, uh, you know, dies on a stone table and then comes back to life like uh, Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm. Mm -hmm. I didn't put Mm -hmm. that together, but yes, of course. Mm hmm. Um, So, I mean, this is just like a it's a it it is played with such total sincerity. It's a it's a flash animation if you're not reading along. and yeah, it is like I remember re- watching it and having kind of two thoughts. One is like, OK, this is sort of like an anime power up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and it made it it was all very funny to me when people were like flipping out over John having been killed um, because it was just so clear that he was going to come back to life like John lie down on this like weird mystical stone bed. Mm-hmm. Right. And in Vriska saying this, right? And it's all going to be fine. You're just going to go to sleep and take a nap and it'll be fine. And then uh, 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 Jack shows up and kills him. And it's like, okay, right? Like, this is this is going to go in a different direction. Like, John is not actually dead. And lo and behold, he's not. Uh, we get this, like, whole, like, empowering transformation sequence. We've got these, uh, you know, art by, I believe, um, Lexi showing all of the kids like witnessing it uh, and it is played with such like total sincerity to uh, the uh, mechanism of the game, right? This kind of power up mechanism that in an earlier part of Homestuck uh, would have been leavened with quite a bit of uh, irony. Yeah, right. Yeah, it- uh, <laughs> the, the juggalo would have been in the background going honk. Mm hmm. <laughs> So, uh, like, this is the moment where I think, like, okay, this this comic, I think, is is sort of, uh, you know, uh, re-rolling for maybe someone who is not me Um, or like not precisely me for for a larger group of people who outnumber whatever group of people I belong to. Um, Yeah. Yes, I think that. Absolutely. And uh, what keeps me invested in Homestuck then 
uh, is that this doesn't like make me angry. I'm not like this is so bad. I'm going to stop reading because the story isn't what I wanted it to be. Uh, my thought is like, well, what's happening here? Because remember, I've already sort of put together this uh, weird resonance between uh, the author, the loss of reader commands, uh, the intrusion of Jack into the narrative, taking over the troll session. Um, this is a story that is like going to constantly sort of yank itself away from whatever you think it is. And I'm like, what's going on there? Right. Wait, where where is this going to go? Where could you possibly go? I think way back when we talked about how uh, the the early uh, parts of this comic, like incorporate game FAQs. Mm -hmm. You said something like, uh, you know, this feels like it's it's sort of like custom made to result in like very intense relationships. Yeah. Um, and all of this stuff where like the the author's seizure of control away from like the audience or like if it's even a seizure at all. Right. Because the, the whole thing about the interface effect in the protocol is that whoever designed the interface is the one who's like controlling the the inputs of the reader. Anyway, um, I don't know the interface effect then. I'm just like trying to figure out like what is what is what's going to happen? Is this going to go really, really bad? Mm hmm. So just one other thing where I really felt like this is uh, like alongside the, the John death scene where the comic is really reframing itself mm -hmm. is the entire B, B plot with Rose mm -hmm. and Aradia and then training the Harry Potter fascist to be a white wizard to kill Rose. Mm -hmm. Like you mean, Kanaya, that, not Aradia. Oh yeah. It's Kanaya. Mm -hmm. Sorry. They're, look, yeah. they're all, yeah. there's 12 of them. It's uh -huh. hard to know. Uh -huh. uh, uh, green troll. Yes. Uh, that whole thing. D to me, I was like, oh, this is like a straight up young adult novel just in here. Yep. Like with no, and like with a lot of Harry Potter in it. But, but oh, like some just dueling wizards about the fate of the universe. Like you can't get more flat than that. But I just, so I just wanted to flag that, that there are a couple big inflection points that felt like during this reading of like other people. This is for other people now. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you can get on board and it seems like people continue to get on board. Like I think I said that in the last recording too. So, but anyway, mm -hmm. fan art, people are making a lot of fan art and uh, some of it's really good. But yeah, so there's all this fan art being produced. And of course I know about fan fiction. Uh, and this is like the, the fact that there is fan production happening is not news to me as someone who is kind of a dedicated anti-fan. Um, but what I start noticing here at this point is like, how people are dedicating their imaginations to this thing. And some of these people are really good artists and they're producing really, you know, incredible work. Um, and even the people who are like amateurs or just starting out or, you know, not as good at art in a traditional sense, like everyone's kind of joining in and doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, just like expending some finite amount of their attention to uh, participate in this big, weird, like what feels to me like an online experiment, right? Like uh, an online storytelling experiment that uh, has some kind of obscure logic to it. But like the one thing that is clear is that audience response is constantly kind of getting folded in in direct and indirect ways. Um, some like all those blood swaps that we talked about last time where it's like, here's all of the trolls if they all had different uh, casts, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
other things that I'm hearing about from uh, people talking about the official forums is that uh, there are people who are starting like their own role play groups. And those are like AU role play groups. People in the Something Awful thread think it's hysterical to have an alternate universe of uh, this this story that we're hearing. Right. They, they think it's just like completely mockable. Um, that you would take a story and then be like, well, what if the trolls never had to enter the game? And it was just like, you know, like uh, the further adventures of like Vriska and Aridin trying to like outmaneuver each other or something like that in their role playing games. Um, like there are people in the thread who think this that's really silly. And I just I don't like have a particular opinion on it. Right. Because to me, it starts seeming more like, oh, this is just you know, further expenditure of imagination, right? This this story catches your attention and invites you to play with the toys that it gives you. And I start thinking that there's something really exciting and beautiful about that. Uh, I, I, I stop hating fandom, right? Like, I, I may be posting like an asshole, but like, I am having like a full kind of like shift in perspective about what it means to sort of participate in kind of creative community uh, oriented around kind of this this central text. Um, and I'm interested in seeing where that goes, right? I want to see how does this thing continue to kind of help people imagine or like invite uh, people to imagine? And how is it going to respond to the things that uh, its readers are imagining about it? Um, so yeah, I, I don't know, like I just like this is this like it, it's weirdly enough, like a moment where I think the story stops being like, quote unquote, for me. And on the other hand, it's it, it it's the moment that gets us to this podcast. Right. Because if mm -hmm. I didn't have something to say about these things, we wouldn't be recording it right now. <laughs> I really wish that at the end of that story, you'd been like, and that's why I'm ready to reveal that I am the prominent, you know, whatever <laughs> fan artist. <laughs> Blablinko. <laughs> Prominent and controversial because <laughs> yes. I I uh, insisted that trolls didn't have noses. Mm -hmm. Do they wait? No, they do. They do have they do have noses <laughs> in the art. Yes, sometimes. Uh, but there is like a, a sort of like, a, you know, debates start happening in uh, fandom about uh, what do characters canonically look like? Uh, because we see so many different kind of abs abstractions of them between mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, the little sprites in the hero mode. Um, some of the some of the things that Hussey is being asked about on uh, like Formspring is how tall is Gamzee? <laughs> Like, because short little Gamzee, who's a sprite, uh, uh -huh. when he rides his one wheel device, his unicycle, he like the unicycle is just like a, a stock photo asset. So it's like a human proportioned one. And so his legs aren't really long enough to use it. Um, so people are like, well, Gamzee, if he's using a unicycle, must therefore actually be taller than how the art represents him. And so people are sending hussy questions on Forum Spring, asking, like, how tall the characters are. Are any of the characters uh, chubby or overweight? Uh, mm -hmm. Could you tell us how much they weigh? Like asking for very specific, like, measurements and dimensions of these characters for the representation in their fan art. And so I've really, you know, raked Hussey over the coals for some of the, um, like, weird platonic, like, these characters exist as uh, uh, ideals beyond what you can see kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think overall this is... Uh, 
you can you can have this perspective on your art okay i think it's going to lead you into a lot of weird and unhelpful places and it's especially going to maybe lead readers into weird and unhelpful places as a theory of fiction it's not great yes right but uh, you can see now historically why this theory kind of bubbles up as a response to people saying like well <laughs> is fairy chubby <laughs> Right. And then yeah. this becomes on the form spring, like a whole bunch of fat jokes where like Hussey gets so tired of having to like respond to people asking how much the trolls weigh uh, that he just starts saying like, oh, I mean, at one point, right, to, to hard strike against the platonic ideal of the characters, someone asks, like, are any of the characters chubby? And Hussey just responds, you can see them. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? They're in the comic. <laughs> Um, uh, that is the ultimate yeah i can see them and that's why i thought john was white yeah (laughs) like because there are black characters and john is not black so then they're for hussy come on bud (laughs) so right uh you get uh this uh, uh sort of i think a platonic theory of fiction that is a reaction to uh, fans really wanting to have like hard and delimited rules about how these characters should be represented as they like quote unquote really are. Um, and it gets really messy. Uh, like, I mean, this is also where we get the first uh, 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 someone asks, someone eventually asks like, who is the fattest troll? And Andrew is like, Oh, it's Vriska. And this becomes like a, the idea of Riska being fat becomes a, a a huge like fat phobic joke that sort of like echoes throughout the fandom for years to come. Hmm. Um, but uh, the other thing that happens then is that we get uh, the first in, in this reading, we get the first glimpse of Dave's red eyes. And so then immediately people are like, Oh, does Dave have um, albinism? And, you know, never because he has because he's like a uh, pure white and has red eyes. Never mind the fact that like Rose had purple eyes before we saw those without any questions as to whether or not like what was going on with Rose. But now it suddenly becomes like a thing, right? People are asking, does Dave have albinism? And uh, Hussey is responding to this, uh, trying to say like, no, these these characters are kind of abstractions. You should not take their representations literally. So we're getting like both things happen, right? You can see the characters and also uh, what you see of the characters is not really like intended in the human case, at least, right? Uh, Hussey is, uh, is maybe trying to work more into this, that they're not intended to be any particular kind of way, even though Hussey has previously asked answered questions about like, what color is Dave's hair? Is he a ginger? This is a question, right? Is Dave a ginger? Um, and never mind that in the comic itself, at multiple points, the characters refer to each other as white. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, seems complicated. Uh, seems like a big old thing to wrangle that uh, basically no one was up to the task of doing and post hoc have claimed everything good and nothing bad. Mm hmm. Um, and just to, to, you know, touch on another part of the reading that I think is relevant here is the, the Charles Dutton joke, which sucks. It's the same joke as the beginning, right? When Charles Dutton showed up the first time. Yeah. Wait, did he show up? I- yeah, I believe so. Okay. Oh, wait. Yeah, he was, I think, early. Anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's very similar similar form, right? Like right. That, that Charles Dutton is like an author and also uh, like a poet. Yeah, a sleeping prophet, as he's referred to. Yeah. Um, but it sucks in the sense that like, and someone asks Hussey about this, like, why is it that any time a black person shows up in your comic, it's a joke? 
Yeah. Um, and it's a fair question. And of course, Hussey's response on Form Spring is like, uh, sorry if you don't see how this is me paying homage to these respected uh, public figures. Uh, so is that Form Spring contemporary with this joke happening? Yes. So so I so that I guess that's an interesting thing of of the like auto response in the Jade Tavros conversation I was talking about a minute ago too. Mm-hmm. That that like Hussey can mind read what what people would be concerned about or like, mm-hmm. you know, the what they would consider an annoying response, right? Mm-hmm. And then are kind of getting in at it first. It's uh what do you call it? Uh, stealing the thunder. Mhm. Mhm. But for people responding to your work. <laughs> yeah. Right, it's always like trying to get one step ahead of like the the critiques or criticisms that you know people are going to make. Yeah. Uh yeah, so so I mean, that's a thing that happens. Uh, and like to be clear, uh, other celebrities show up in weird places uh, who are not black. Uh, and it's sort of a similar type of joke. Like there's one where like someone uh, in in the intermission, Spade Slick finds like a picture of Jeff Foxworthy underneath a rug. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I think like one of the things that I put together on this read through. Uh, is that when a white celebrity shows up as in a gag like that, it's almost uh, some it's almost always someone who is like incredibly corny in a specific way. Mm. Whereas yeah, the night court guy, too, right? Right. The night court guy, uh, even like sort of Bing Crosby, mm-hmm. who's another yeah. one who shows up in this kind of fashion. God, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then uh, the the thing that, you know, makes it not work when uh, the like it's done with a, a black celebrity uh, is that there doesn't seem like corny, like whiteness when it shows up is funny because it's corny. Uh, when blackness shows up, it seems to be funny because it's blackness, right? Because it uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, Oh, Bill Cosby and Charles Dutton. This is the most I've thought about Charles Dutton, maybe in my entire life. <laughs> it's just not coming up a lot. I was just saying my, that's, that's my, the most you have to say. Yeah. In my, in my day to day life, I'm not really thinking too much about Charles Dutton. Um, I think I had something else I wanted to say here, too, just at the end. Um, Falcor, which I'm sure we'll talk about that Mm -hmm. uh, in in, uh, additional times. Dang, there's... uh, I don't know. Yeah, dang, I had another thing. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, so we've got Falcor, the never-ending story with the the pulsing eyes. Uh, Beck also turns into a Falcor when he jumps into the Colonel mm-hmm. Sprite. Mm-hmm. I mean, this whole thing is, it's never-ending story territory, like, straight up here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, with Jack as Gamork and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's, there's like, a there's a Gamork, but also that the... Uh, weirdly enough, right, it, it seems like here at the end of this reading, John's back to kind of being the main character. Mm-hmm. And he's on like a quest to go and make the things happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a called shot that I made forever ago. Right. But in before I had read before I had read the never ending story. But now having read the never ending story and know what happens at the break point of that, where like basically the whole cast of characters gets wiped away <laughs> to bring <laughs> up a new cast of characters. I'm going to claim again that we are cruising for a bruising. And somewhere here before act six, which I've been told is the whole back half of the comic, uh, I think we're going to kill off a whole bunch of characters. Mm-hmm. And we're going to kind of like wipe the universe and then make some new stuff and then have to go through this whole rigmarole again. Oh, boy. 
That's based on my reading of the Neverending Story, and if this comic continues the uh, the train that is uh, its replication of the Neverending Story in form and format. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we shall see. We shall see together. We're going to. I hope people got to vote on who got to live, <laughs> like Survivor. Oh my God, that okay. We'll revisit that thought. Um, <laughs> uh, I hope I'm just spitting truth constantly, truly. And look, if you think that this is like an elaborate, because I, if I were listening to this, so if I were listening to this show and I made, and I said all these things and even two thirds of them came true, I would think, oh, it's, it's like all kayfabe, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, I promise you. I don't know anything about what's going to happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> even a little bit in this comic. I'm just, I'm just spitting hard truths here and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully... Hopefully some of them come true. Hopefully. Have you, you been marking down all my predictions? Uh, I've marked down quite a few of them. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I haven't. And I, that'll be fun. Like, you know, if they if they happen, yeah. that we'll have a record of them. Uh, so just, uh, just some other brief uh, notes here. Uh, in the Something Awful thread, uh, Toby Fox shows up and starts talking with people. Mm. Toby uh, Fox got some music in this uh, section we read. Yep, yep. Toby Fox uh, drops in on the thread and kind of chats about like the um, process of creating the Flash, specific or spe- uh, specifically uh, the song for Jade's entry Flash. Um, mm-hmm. One other thing to flag here: uh, a lot of people thought that Jade's entry might be like the end of the act. Right? There's a question mm-hmm. because historically Homestuck has operated on this kind of logic where like. Uh, we build up to kind of a crescendo of usually a character entering the game and then an act ends. Mm-hmm. That's how this has functioned up until this point. So people are like, okay, we'll probably like have Jade enter uh, and that will end act five and then we'll get into act six, uh, which will be kind of the climax act. And then act seven will be sort of the the conclusion or the finale. So people are thinking like, oh, this comic is going to end pretty soon. And of course it's winter of 2010. Um, Homestuck does not end until spring of 2016. So uh, one of the things to keep in mind historically here is that like the the there is no view to the future. No one knows how long this is going to last and they're trying to call it and it's not happening. Um, anyway, people think that it act five is going to end with uh, Jade's entry. It doesn't. Um on another form spring, Hussey uh, mentions that one of kind of the guiding rules for making Homestuck is that there are no second thoughts. Hmm. That's a direct quote. Like everything just happens like and uh, no no sort of revisions. Right. Or as few revisions as possible. Huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Only. uh uh, what do you call it? Uh, Only uh, retcons. I couldn't come up with a word. No yeah. revisions, only retcons. Um, and then another kind of uh, fandom thing that I want to mention, just because it was kind of a, a, a big blow up. Um, and it isn't it's indicative of like what the Internet was like uh, 12 years ago um, versus now. Uh, and maybe some of the ways in which it hasn't changed. So a calendar is being produced for the the shop right a piece of fan merchandise uh that it's a a year calendar of homestuck art with uh art by prominent fan artists so all of these things that are sort of like turning me around on fandom right seeing like oh these people like there are people with talent and there are people you know with maybe uh different types of talent uh but everyone is kind of coming together and like producing stuff about this thing that they enjoy and i think that's really cool Mm -hmm. uh 
the the Watt pumpkin apparatus is in place and it's taking those things and it's, uh, you know, commodifying them, making them into products. Uh, mm. And the artists are getting paid for the inclusion of their artwork and everything. Right. It's not like a, a pure exploitation, but um, we're seeing kind of like a, a little mini corporation being born. Right. Mm hmm. Uh, the calendar is like $23, which a lot of people think is overpriced. I actually have no opinion. I don't buy calendars. I don't know how much they go for. <laughs> I think a calendar, I don't know, in 2010 prices, but I think about 20, 25 bucks for a calendar. Yeah, I was thinking like a nice glossy calendar, like 23 bucks seems seems perfectly reasonable to that me. Seems like a normal price to me. Um, uh, you know, I'm not like attuned to like the anime con economy. And so mm -hmm. it could be that volume uh, reduces prices there but like mm -hmm. yeah if you're gonna if you're buying a delightful kitten calendar you're gonna pay about 20 bucks yeah uh but the there's a big controversy here because of the inclusion of a piece of artwork um that becomes known as march eridan i'm going to send mm -hmm. this to you in the chat cameron i i i've already opened it, it is in the document okay. and i actually this is the first thing i looked at when you sent me that document and mm -hmm. uh uh, the word confused comes to mind. Mm -hmm. So, uh, me, which is me being confused about everything happening in this art. Yeah. Uh, so this is a piece of artwork that becomes kind of infamous because, uh, there are people who see it. So all of the artwork for the calendar gets posted so people can see what they're buying, obviously. Um, and then there are people who are like, I'm just not going to buy the calendar because of this. Uh, okay. it is by an artist who at this time go, uh, went by the handle, uh, aborted slunk. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, uh, what her handle is, uh, currently. Um, but there was a, a lot of controversy here because it is one, um, kind of uncanny, like, uh, aborted slunk had contributed to previous flashes and stuff. Uh, she was a part of the art team and, mm -hmm. uh, had done some of the sprites for like the, the walk arounds and things. Uh, but this is done in kind of an entirely different style. There's like a lot of, uh, like facial shading, right? There's a lot of lines. It's, uh, Rose Aridin in the foreground. In the background, we have Kanaya and Jade. Um, Rose is wearing like this really like elaborate, almost, uh, weird burlesque Victorian like dress thing. Uh, yeah, it's like a New Orleans flapper kind yeah. of thing going on. Um, uh, across from her, Aridin is wearing like a plaid skirt and a tube top with like uh, classic 2010s like scene kid uh, arm <laughs> sleeves with the yeah, black and purple stripes. <laughs> I really, uh, I really like Westworlded those arm sleeves. I was like, this, this is just something. Like I didn't, but of course, of course, it's like from the like scene Tumblr style of that time. Mm -hmm. Did uh, did not even connect to that. Uh, and in the background, uh, we have uh, Kanaya wearing a, a black dress uh, and like pull, holding up a, a dress for Jade, who looks delighted at this being sort of sized up for her. Um, but mm -hmm. like when the characters are smiling, you can see like their individual teeth. Right. Which is uh, uh, one of those recipes for making something feel really uncanny. Yeah, it's just it's a little too detailed and it is in. Well, everyone's a little too muscular. Mm -hmm. like it just broadly right mm -hmm. like like every like everyone's a little too toned also everyone's like kind of child proportioned but like adult muscled mm -hmm. 
and the shading really sells that. So it just kind of feels a little bit weird. But I'm sorry, you were you were saying. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I mean, basically the reaction to this is like uh, not just like, oh, this is some weird uncanny artwork, but like a big sort of burst of uh, like queer phobia and transphobia. Right. Uh, especially in the something yeah. awful thread uh, where it's like, oh, this is this is totally disgusting. Like, why do we have a boy dressing in girls clothes? That sort of thing. Mm. Um, Aridin's gills are particularly rough to me. Yeah, the um, gills are really textured because Aridin is one of the sea trolls. So he's mm-hmm. got gills. Yep. Why are there and there are bugs up in the lamp? Like there, there's some some just choice. The artistic choices being made are quite strange to me. But uh, I that is not what it sounds like. People are responding to. They're responding to uh, the clothing. Also, it's at a canted angle. I just a lot of a lot of interesting choices made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, this feels like this is just like a like a fandom thing, right? Of like. I've just seen a lot of like Final Fantasy art mm-hmm. in this mode, going back all the way to the '90s. Uh, in this mode, meaning what mode specifically? And there's like a, a cast of characters, and they're all like dressing up, and it's a good time. And then someone's in like gender inappropriate clothing. Those mm-hmm. are, that's in quotation marks, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you know, so it's like Squall's in a dress, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, Chief is wearing a suit, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there you know there are. Uh, political social valences all that to it as well but like this this form and framework of like dress up and then someone is in quote unquote the wrong clothes Mm -hmm. this is just like i associate this very strongly with fandom um Mm -hmm. and uh so yeah i just you know maybe that's just like a thing that people are in uh too socially invested in policing Mm -hmm. for you know various garbage reasons but yeah. Uh, yeah. This is like, like extremely in the in the land of like f- things that happen in fan art. This is perhaps the most tame and uncontroversial thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think sort of notably, um, uh, the artist is trans, right? Is a trans mm-hmm. woman. Um, and I do not think uh, she was out at the time that this art was posted. Right. Mm-hmm. So gotcha. uh, this is one of the other things. I mean. To, to notice about Homestuck or to sort of like call out because it's not going to necessarily be clear at this point um, is how uh, central queerness is going to become to the way that the fandom thinks about the characters and then eventually the ways that the characters start talking about and thinking about themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, all of space and time is happening to them all at one time. <laughs> and that's already actually happened in the reading for today, right? Where uh, the bunny changes genders. Mm hmm. Yeah, because uh, uh, Jade doesn't give us uh, the name that she had for the bunny, but it was a boy's name. And then uh, John's like, oh, sorry, I like I named her Liv Tyler. Mm-hmm. And then, But yeah, there's something at the end of that conversation where they're like, well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And uh, but I mean, obviously, that's like a minor character to a minor character to a minor character. But I can definitely see how. When you uh, when all the time and space is manipulable and operable and uh, you're, you're kind of seeding, um, you know, uh, the arbitrariness of gender mm-hmm. um, at the at, at the top that there's a lot of room to to go a lot of places with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and yeah, so it, we're going to go. Like we started out with Carcat being in hate love with John, but that was presented as ridiculous. Remember, there were people who were like, ah, this is really sticking it to the shippers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And then Carcat has moved on by having a crush on just about every other character he's interacted with, it seems like. Um, Actually, no, that's more (laughs) of an Aridin thing. Anyhow, uh, 
there'll be more to say about that uh, next time when we continue with Act 5, Act 2, uh, with Episode uh, 5, Part 3, where we will be reading up through page 3,349. Wahoo! Yeah. Any any parting words, Cameron? That's the end of the episode. Da 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 da. Wah.